0: Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thanks for joining me. Today, we speak to an old friend of mine and someone who really knows communications inside and out. Before we come to him, we start with the definition, as we do each week, of exactly what content communication is. Content communication is a strategic, measurable, and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So that's content communication. And jump online to www.contentgroup.com.au to learn more about it and click on the research um, tab And jump in there and have a look at the research program that we have underway with the Australian National University, a really exciting uh, project that we will continue to report to you over the next 10, 12 months or so as we continue to build out that method and that standard that we're seeking to create for content communication, a global standard for the way that government... ...engages with citizens and stakeholders. But to my guest today, Mr Alan Yates. Yatesy has worked as a journalist in both the national and international media... ...for almost 20 years, including 12 years... In the federal parliamentary press gallery he's also held senior roles in media relations with the australian institute of sport and certainly played a key role at the sydney 2000 olympics more recently he's worked in strategic advice issues management and communications for organizations such as the australian automobile association the tafe directors uh, of australia the Australasian New Car Assessment Program, the Department of Climate Change, New South Wales Health, but most importantly recently, a significant role at the Australian War Memorial, which is Australia's number one tourist attraction and an icon in uh, the Australian community. But he joins me now in the studio. Alan Yates, welcome to In Transition. Thank you, David. Hi. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. You've done a lot, but you also did... um, you know, you worked for the former prime minister, didn't you? Bob Bob Hawke for a while?
1: I did have work for the Hawke and Keating governments on a couple of their projects. Um it was probably a transition out of journalism into the uh, the dark side.
0: <laughs> you talk about that transition, but let's go back to your time as a journalist. What what brought you to journalism? What made you interested in becoming a journalist and a and a senior journalist at that?
1: Well, you don't start as a senior journalist. My entry into journalism, I would say, was uh, completely um, ad hoc. I was sitting at home waiting for my end-of-year school results. Um, I probably would have been a teacher in those days. That was the profession most students got exposed to. Where did you grow up, just by the way? Um, I was brought up mainly in Sydney in the Sutherland Shire. Okay. Born in New Zealand. My sister was born in Scotland 13 months later, so we basically chased my father around for the first 10 years of our lives. Right. Okay, um, but uh, waiting uh, for my school results, and I'm watching television one day, and one Casey was on air, and uh, I looked at him and thought uh, he is an icon to television. I could certainly see myself maybe one day doing something like that, um, and from there I contacted media outlets, and most of them said no way in the world. But uh, I did get an opportunity at News Limited, which I took up as, a, in those days, a senior copy boy, uh, which moved through to a cadetship and uh, moved on from a cadetship then.
0: How hard was it to get into the media, to, to get that role? Uh,
1: it wasn't easy. Uh, for example, uh, Fairfax Media had uh, awarded, they awarded 12 cadetships a year at the start of the year. And I think that particular year, 1973, tragically, that I was looking for um, that position, there were about... Um, 800 people who'd applied. Uh, they now award about um, eight, eight cadetships a year, and they have something like 32 to 38,000 people a year
0: applying. So. Wow! But back then, what what was it that you you loved about journalism? What was it you know apart from you know probably you know Ron Casey being the uh, you know the the the, the sports. Uh, broadcaster at the time, yeah. what was it that you that you liked yeah. about it that, that, uh, that attracted you to it? What were the specific parts of it?
1: Well, I think I had a facility with words. Yeah. I'm certainly, I wouldn't call myself a numbers person. So uh, I think that was always something that uh, assisted me. Um, and uh, I liked the thought of um, going out, viewing things and being able to report it back to the public. Um, The paper I worked on in those days was the Daily Mirror, which was an afternoon daily, um, up against the Sydney Sun, which made it one of the most competitive news markets in the world.
0: I remember it well. I was a
1: paper boy at the time. There weren't too many um, uh, markets in the world, city markets in the world, that had two afternoon dailies. Our first edition hit the streets at 9.15, so we were up and at them very early, and uh, it was a very competitive environment. But in those days, uh, long before mobile phones uh, and computers, um, you would go out, you would assess a scene, and because you were working for a, an afternoon daily with, with five editions a day, um, you'd... You rang back into the office and you um, basically dictated your story, which gave you, uh, which gave I think most people in my position a good facility to um, sort their words out, uh, get it into a flow pretty much on the run, and then be able to dictate it down the line.
0: And in terms of that, what was the best advice that that you got about telling stories at that time? What what makes a good story? Well, there are a number of ones.
1: uh, broadsheet dailies, um, which I worked on later in life, versus tabloids, which was the Sydney Sun and the Daily Telegraph. Um, they were very uh, conversational in the way they presented their uh, their material. So it was uh, it was always that was something that was always presented to me: keep it pretty simple, uh, keep it conversational, um, keep the sex in the lead, make sure that people um, got interested right from the start.
0: Yeah, and th- and that really stands to this day, doesn't it? Simple communication go hard early with your best information to grab the attention because if you don't grab the attention early they're not going to stay with you
1: I think it does but I think the uh, the nature of journalism these days is a little bit more as a commentariat as much as yeah. a rep- as reporting issues so uh, in many cases you're getting a mix of the the actual story um, for the public and also the uh, the journalist's view on on how that story should
0: be viewed Sure, but that it's but it's still that point about attention, though, isn't it? That you even if it's commentary, straight news reporting, you've got to go, you've got to give your best or your hardest opinion earliest if you're going to grab attention, or your best facts and information to try to grab that attention.
1: I agree, and I think with newspapers, you still have, and uh, with electronic medium, you do have uh, that heading uh, is often something that pulls people in or sends them away.
0: Yeah. So, in terms of your time um, as a journalist, and so obviously going out and and reporting at all sorts of different um, uh, probably news events, sports events. What did you what did you like about that part of it? You know that that notion of obviously being out there, having that front row uh, on the first cut of history. Um, exciting times for you?
1: Uh, it was. It was an exciting time for a young person uh, at any uh, you know in any era. I think, but. Uh technology was slowly coming into it in the 70s and so the uh, the game journalism was uh, evolving um, but you're right, they'd be able to go out there. Journalists do have an access that in many cases they don't understand they've got until they no longer have it. Yeah. And that would certainly be the case in politics. Um, yeah. Most
0: politicians will call a journalist back. I certainly, I know when I had, he was fortunate enough to spend 10 years as a reporter for the ABC. And I don't think I did understand back then just that privilege that you have, that notion of front seat access to be at such wonderful events, you know, important, significant sporting events, cultural events, political events and you get the most privileged position because of your responsibility to then tell that story out to your to your readership. but it was great it's it, I loved it as a, as a journalist um, I, I found it just so invigorating but ultimately it's, it's funny but from my point of view I I ultimately wanted to be I got sick of probably, reporting on other people and thought to myself well hang on I actually want to go and do something myself I don't want to be always telling the story of other people I actually want to go and do something so I found that you know my time in journalism I, I, I don't know it sort of ran out it sort of ran its course a bit did, did you find that in journalism that it, that it ran its course for you
1: um, I think journalism is often a young person's game. Yeah, okay. um, you do have your own omenoscure um, uh, across the board, but uh, by and large, uh, in a lot of workforces, young people form the basis for that workforce. Mm. Um, I don't know that journalism is any different to that. Um, the people who are out on the road, uh, the people who are you know taking taking the risks in some cases, uh, and then moving back quickly to report it back to their audiences, um, they are they are at the front line, as you say, and they do have a privileged position. Um, so I find that it is probably a young person's game, um, People see it as a career more now than it may well have been 20 or 30 years ago. Um, And it may well have been, as you were saying, moving through your life. Um, It was a job for X number of years, and then you started to see it as a career. And I think that's a a, a telling difference is uh, a job is a job, a career is something you decide you want to do for the rest of your life. And I found that um, journalists who came through, who took that decision to make journalism a career as opposed to treating it as a job, were the ones who often went on to senior positions.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I wonder, and this is probably a little, you know, sort of tangential for, you know, we've, the audience here is really government communications, but bear with me. they, I sort of go off on these random, you know, tangents um, occasionally. But I wonder about long-term journalism um, and journalists who spend a lot of time reporting and not having the experience of actually going and doing other things to enrich their experience to be able to come back with a different perspective. And I think we're the poorer for it. I don't think there's enough diversity at senior levels. I don't think we get enough, um, you know, a, a richer experience in some of those correspondents. And they spend all their time doing the one thing. And you know it, to me particularly in politics you just i find that there's a you know there's a you know, there's not the perspective that i need when i read a lot of it you know it's like oh they've done this or they've done that or well, it's like okay well you're like making decisions Making decisions is difficult, you know, and often in political journalism, it's like, oh, they've done this or that, you know, they, and it's, it, it's, it's, not, it's not grounded in any sort of understanding that those things are intensely difficult and choices have to be made and grown-ups have to make choices and you can't please everybody all the time. And it's, you know, co- politics, you know, as a horse race almost, you know, who's in front, who's behind... Who did what to who? One like second. you know, who cares? You know, like to me. Anyway, that that is a bit of a rave to the side. Okay, so let's let's get back on point here. Really, around what I want to talk to you about is obviously you've you you had a, a distinguished career in journalism for a long time in, in in political journalism. I think when you were here in in Canberra, um, you know, you were bureau chief for the major, you know, News Limited, you know, the Australian newspaper. Chief of
1: staff, not bureau chief. Of staff, sorry, chief well, I like of staff. to make a differentiation.
0: <laughs> Yep. Yeah, but still, chief of staff is a you know incredibly important position in terms of you know um, gathering and, and distributing and you know ordering priority for what people what stories are going to actually you know make the cut. But what did you and, and then you moved into sort of you know telling stories, working for government, um, you know out at the uh, Australian Institute of Sport and the, the Australian Sports Commission. What? What skills did you bring with you from journalism into that storytelling role when you were representing the government agencies that you, you worked for? All right, a couple of things.
1: If I could just go back on your rave. <laughs> um, I think that journalism is like most professions. Um, people who have been in the game for a long time um, have experience and expertise. In many cases, you um, arrive at that level because you have had a broad base of um experience in terms of in journalism, going out and doing that. But uh, as we move into our um, more senior positions, as you call them, um, we're meeting with younger people who have decided that uh, communications or journalism is their career. Uh, in my case, and in, I would say, a lot of cases of uh, people my age, um, we Fell into the game. We came into the game because we were able to get into it. It's intensely competitive now. Uh, young people these days go to university for three or four, you know, for three or four years to achieve that um, that um, expertise, to achieve that uh, degree or that uh, that on the on the. Um, in college experience um, so I think that um, all the journalists these days have to understand that they are working in with a new workforce that is specifically skilled for the game they're coming into yeah well I think that it's really important to have that broad base um, young people these days are making those decisions and uh, and they're coming into uh, into things like journalism and communications viewing it as a career for them rather than just a job yeah uh, many people uh, my age group and uh, I'd say you're at least a generation below me which is the <laughs> good news day um, I would Say so we we came into the game um, seeing it as a job. Yeah, right. uh, and we moved from there. Okay. Uh, now your second question was about telling the story. Um, at a place like the Australian Institute of Sport, I was there from '96. Um, I worked for the Hawke and Creedin governments, and we got thrashed in '96 by Howard. Um, but uh, I was lucky enough um, to take up a position at the uh, AIS and the Sports Commission as the manager of media and public relations running from 96, just before the Atlanta Olympics through to the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Mm. Um, There was no shortage of stories to be told, Uh, whether it be uh, preparation for the Olympics, whether it be funding for the Olympics, whether it be athlete preparation, whether it be the significant um, scientific advantage that the Australian Institute of Sport was giving Australian sport in those days. And it was the preeminent sports laboratory in the world. um, it, uh, It was an exciting time to be there. I was very lucky to be there um... we took, we basically moved the AIS and Sports Commission from its role as a smaller media and comms area, servicing um, media with sports interests to international um, sporting icon effectively as Australia did well, uh, improved uh, in Barcelona and Atlanta and then moving into the Sydney 2000 Olympics the AIS's reputation was preeminent and it was incredible that the stories that could have been told, for example in 96 um, when the Australian team was at Atlanta, the Australian and junior swimming team was in camp at the ais and they were living the same routine getting up early in the morning walking for kilometers with bricks in their gear bags um doing their training sessions um having briefings but really just trying to um encapsulate that Olympic experience for the next generation of swimmers. There were fantastic stories to be told. Alongside that, there are other areas such as the African Sports um, Centre, which was there, and also the Indigenous Sports Centre. And at that time, the Sports Commission was taking big steps into grassroots sport with what was then called their Active Australia Program. So there were no shortage of stories to be told. But how
0: did you decide which stories to tell to to build certainly around the the AIS, the, the mystique of, you know, this place, you know, the Australian Institute of Sport. I was, just as an aside, I was the communications director of the Wallabies at the 99 World Cup. And pretty much every press conference that we had during that particular tournament, people would raise this issue of the Australian Institute of Sport, you know, as if it was this magical place that bespoke... <laughs> uh, bestowed powers on to the athletes. And, you know, what role did the Australian Institute of Sport play in the development of the Wallabies? Now, a lot of the athletes had had been part of the AIS, but it really was that mystique. And I'll I'll come to that in a minute about how did you build that mystique, but just go back to that, if, if I might, that first question of with so many stories to tell. And I think it's the same really... Uh, in government everywhere is that there are thousands of stories to tell. And I think, you know, in your experience at New South Wales Health, um, uh, your experience at climate change, like there's, there's, there's never really a lack of stories to tell in government. But just going back to that point, how did you decide which stories to tell and how strategic were you about building up this mystique?
1: Right. I don't know that you can tell too many stories if the media is not interested in hearing them. Uh, we were absolutely swamped by the media Um, For example, uh, you may recall Eckhart Arbeit was appointed as the head athletics coach um, for Australia running into the Sydney Olympics. Uh, It subsequently uh, came out that he'd been a member of um, the East German regime in the late 70s. And so over the course of eight weeks, I think we had something like five and a half thousand media queries um, about this. Alongside that, the international media was getting interested in Australia in the build up to the Sydney Olympics. We had incredible interest and um, visitation from overseas and international media agencies. So the the fact of we having stories to tell is probably um, more importantly defined by the number of people who want to hear it and run it. So we're in a position where we're able to talk about Australia's preparation for the Olympics, the individual sports preparation for the Olympics, the uh, um, the issues around the um, the AIS and their sports science and uh, and what they were looking at, and you may recall that um, drug testing was becoming through the 90s was becoming much more of a uh, an acknowledged and scientific. Um, Project for one of a better term, um, but the AIS led that, particularly in an area of EPO, um, yeah, which yeah. was uh, I was uh, involved in that. blood doping, and yeah. uh, we had a there was a sports scientist called Robin Parasotto who really championed that. Uh, but that sports science area was vibrant and, uh, and and led the
0: world. So it was more so in, in that specific instance, it was more about. Um, uh management of flow you know there was so much demand that really it was about really managing that
1: it it was and it was also we're in a situation where we did have a lot of stories as you say we did have a lot of media that wanted their own stories so we were able to feed stories out completely separate alongside that we did some other things where we brought media in and gave them 24 hours at the ais we put them in the athletes um, village Uh, we had them going out and doing sessions with the athlete sports and uh, from ranging from archery through to gymnastics which was always very popular. Uh, And we had a very funny thing with Jeff Hutchison, who was in with the Wide World of Sports, a big unit himself, uh, dressing up in a tutu and uh, going out to do some stuff with the jimmies. Um, It wasn't seen as as, um, taking the mickey out of the the gymnastics program, but it was an incredibly popular segment. And uh, so we were able to draw in media on a whole range of different levels, from soft stories through to hard news stories. Um, And uh, in many cases, there was a lot of interest around the funding and political elements of the Olympics as well.
0: So in terms of... the your journalism. How how useful was your journalism in being able to identify the stories that were going to work? We're going to run understanding the needs of the media so as that you were able to uh, get the
1: stories run. All right. I think in a couple of areas I was lucky in that I probably had strong networks uh, yeah. with with the media, um, and uh, again we're probably talking twenty five. 25 years or so um, after I'd started as a journalist. So I'd <laughs> moved through the journalism phase. And by the time I got to the AIS um, in the late 90s, I did see myself more as a communications practitioner. Yeah. And I think the next step from there was to see myself as a manager. Yeah. Okay. And I think there is a big difference between being a practitioner and a manager.
0: Now, the audience for this podcast are people who work in, in government communication, both here in Australia and and around the world. And the sort of the underpinning of, of content communication, communication is really this um, understanding that people can be, you know, you can be your own media now. you know the technology has gifted us the ability to be our own media company. you know, the factors of media, production and distribution have now been democratized and they they now reside in every organization so you can create your own video content audio content stills graphics and you can distribute that through these massively powerful online um, platforms matched with your offline uh, platforms as well so this this sits at the heart of this process of content communication as somebody who has worked in the field for for quite some time and and someone who's you know great experience in the traditional media what are what are some of the what's some of the advice that you would give people um to be successful in this new world to to take on this capability and to be successful now that you can be your own media company for your program or your policy or your regulation
1: all right um we're talking about comms, not journalism now? Yeah, comms. Okay, yeah. well, I, look, I think, yeah. first off, you need to be relevant. Um, like, yeah, as you've already said, there are a lot of stories out there, but you've got to be relevant to the audience you're trying to attract Yeah. and to... Uh, and so to by the... being relevant, what does that mean? Well, for example, I think a, a good example is the difference between public um, government... Sorry, I'll start again. ...between federal public sector and state public sector. Okay. In the federal public sector, you have uh, greater emphasis on policy and funding. Yeah. For example, there would be, in uh, the Department of Transportation, transport um an area which would say there will be a transport system in sydney or melbourne there will be cars and trucks and buses and freeways and ferries and a ra- rail and a range of different things here's uh, an amount of money to go and build in those in the 2007, 2000 Olympics. It was the M7 motorway, yep. which was there. At the state level, it's more about service delivery. So uh, the the issue there is more about you know, mate, where's my bus? If it's not here in ten minutes, I'm ringing Ray Hadley or Alan Jones. So there was a um, there's a clear distinction between those those two, the delivery of the public service at the federal level and at the state level. And, and would...
0: what the audience needs to hear from you as a result of those different emphasis.
1: Yes, and and, and so so you know with Communications and government communications and relations at the state level—you are much more about informing a public. You're about service delivery. If that bus isn't there, you know why not? If that, you know, and I worked a lot for state transit, which uh, was Sydney buses and Sydney ferries. Um, if that ferry was broken down in the harbour, you know, I would always hear about it on Ray Hadley or Alan Jones because someone, a punter on that ferry, would be ringing up going, "Ah, guess what? The ferry's broken down <laughs> here." Long before our operational people would be letting us know, um, right. because they were dealing with the issue. So I think that that that, uh, is an issue. Um, So, so you know, you need to be able to move quickly and react, but you also need to be able to build significant uh, communications programs um, around that.
0: And what about building those programs? What advice do you have to people, given that they now have, you know, these wonderful, you know, gifts of technology that they can now create these content programs at a much more cost effective way than they've ever been able to do it in in the past as you would remember from the old days you know creating video not that long ago was prohibitively expensive now we can do it on our iPhones you know creating podcasts you'd have to have studios well now like we're doing here we just knocked we've got a little studio in the middle of our office so we can make a program um uh, uh, you know uh, graphics you can go to canva and just grab you know the templates and you know put information so it's it's so much easier now so what info or what advice do you have for people to to take advantage of that given that you've got that you know that skill and experience in journalism, how do people make the best of it? Because it's a sort of a different way of thinking for government communicators who traditionally, I suppose, have been in the space of, you know, engaging through the media and, you know, traditional mainstream advertising.
1: Well, I think I mentioned earlier on, many of the people in my generation, maybe a generation or two under that, um, came through journalists and moved into communication today we're dealing with whole generations of young people that see communications as their skill There, they're taught they're book taught um, and then they move out to be uh, real world taught about the profession they've chosen Uh, many journalists wander into communications because their time as a journalist is finished Um, so that's that's an issue that needs to be to be thought at and and thought about and looked at by the journalists coming into the game and also the younger people who've chosen it as a profession Um, Relevance, again, is is very important. You need to make sure that what you're saying and what you're presenting is is specific to the needs um, specific to the requirements of those audiences there's no point talking to them about apples when what they're looking for is oranges Um, (laughs) there's no point coming out trying to convince people that that bus that they've been waiting for all week that's been 10 minutes late has actually been on time they've just been 10 minutes early you know those kind of things don't work Um, people out there are experiencing their own um, have got their own experiences with whether whatever the service might be at that level or whatever the policy might be at the at the high, at the federal level. How,
0: how do you discover that need? How do you understand the audience and what they're looking for?
1: Well, uh, very quickly, again, in the service delivery area, the state delivery, it comes up in the elevator very quick. If that bus isn't on time, mate, you're in trouble, OK? With with the federal level and often at the international level, you have uh, more time. It's a more controlled environment. That policy is put together. There is, there is feedback sought from a whole range of target audiences and stakeholders. Um, we... Uh, we build the project, you know, or build a project around that and then from that level, fr- from that project being built, we, th- we then develop the specific communications pr- or marketing or content programs that are required to um, present those those projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's very important. In our area as communicators, I often have a graph which is a pyramid um, and the bottom two-thirds of the pyramid are the people who've prepared that product, whether it be Arnott's Biscuits or the AIS or the Olympics Um, or the NDIS, whatever it could be, Um, that project, by the time communicators get involved, is two-thirds, three-quarters developed. Um, Our job is to go from there to pick up that final quarter, that final third. Now, what you've got to do is take the people below you um, who've developed the project, who are wondering who the hell is this person, and explain to them that they are the experts in their area. Mm -hmm. But what you are is an expert in your area, and your job is to take the work they've done and complement it not take it and run it, just to complement it. Uh, with that that upper third, that upper echelon, which is in many cases your senior management, you are in the process of advising them of the best method they can promote or communicate the project that's been developed um, or the product that's been developed. And from there, um, you've got to be able to take that top third with you as well as taking the bottom two thirds.
0: So in terms of that getting involved in that bottom two thirds, how can communications people get involved early, so by the time that they do get involved, you know it's not too far gone or it's not you know they haven't been able to influence in a, in, in a way where it's it's perhaps not fit for purpose? All
1: right. Well, from my point of view, um, I always found it very, very important to acknowledge the role of the people who've developed the policy. Yeah. If you come in thinking, you know, look, I'm, I'm on top of this, you need to be going in there and saying, how is this happening? You know, why is this policy being developed? How have you developed it? you know, and, and, and gain gain the story to be told from those people who've got much more expertise yeah. than we have, yeah. you know, and, and to to try to work around them is just madness and it's suicide. Yeah. Uh, if you've got people who develop the policy who think, you know, who are wondering, you know, or think that you're not much good, yeah. no matter how much you impress the people at the upper echelon, you know, you're going to be working against the tide. Yeah. So that's very important to 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 acknowledge the expertise of everyone involved in the project yep. and to pick their brains about how it's developed. And then once you've picked the brains, then to then to take that away and then formulate it as a communications program. Um, it's not about saying, okay, look, that's a great, we're going to do this, this, this. What does it all mean? You
0: can't do it backwards. Yeah. So it really it's what your advice is, is get up out of your chair Go and see the the people. You know, spend a bit of shoe leather. Go down and ask questions. Be curious. Yeah, well, novel find conce- that essence.
1: Yeah, it's a novel concept, but we are still a people <laughs> game. It is still communications. Yeah. And if you don't get out there and go and speak to the people, how are you going to know what it is? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm a great believer in that. Um, research helps. But, again, research is about people. Yeah. Research is about touching base and finding out. So you can have a great research paper to work off, but you need to know, you know, the background yeah. behind it. You need to know what the people that are developing the product think and uh on both sides, what they think is good about the product and the issues that need to be managed. Alongside that, I think there's two. There's issues to be communicated, there's issues to be managed. And I think that needs to be clearly identified so that once you do know what's up there, you're in a position to be able to treat them differently. Yeah. And the issues management um, program or policy is very different to an issues promotion
0: policy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good advice. And I think sometimes we don't take the time. You know, there's not that level of humility, really, that you just need to think, well, look, I don't know about this and I'm going to go and ask a few questions and it doesn't hurt. And and I, I, for me, this is the intensely interesting part of working in government is, that, you know, we're trying to solve important problems for the community. So the work is really interesting. So spending time with smart people who are very engaged in this particular problem they're trying to solve from a policy level can be very rewarding. Um and getting on top of things so i think that's great advice i agree
1: I also say the communication of it i think communicating it out to the to the larger audiences you know in you know 25 years ago it was all about mass media whereas these days with uh, you know with the internet and technology the digital platforms we have we can go directly to them and you'd only have to look at what happened in the last election campaign with things like mediscare and stuff like that there were direct approaches to the punters and uh, even in the recent ACT election. So it's not, it's not only about pulling stuff together, it's about how you, how you reach out, how you attract people and, and get them to listen to your message.
0: Yeah. How do you do that? What's the best way to do that?
1: Well, I think every every program's different. I think you need to shape it. I think you need to look at the dynamics of the target audience you're trying to hit. You need to look at the product you've got. Um, you need to look at the medium or the platform media or the platforms that you're going to use to communicate it. Um, I think most of these programs are very different uh, in, the way, in the way they're delivered. Um, and so consequently, one size doesn't fit all.
0: So you do need to customise pretty much every communication program?
1: I think so. Uh, most audiences are different. Uh, most products are different. Um, you need to differentiate between the product and your audience. So I'd say nearly all comms programs are um, discrete and individual in their own way. What
0: about that point that you've just made really around, you know, the broadcast era, moving from the broadcast era to the narrow cast era? And that really, it really is about getting that specific understanding of that narrow audience that you're seeking to influence and engage. What are some of your advice that you have to people about trying to drill down to really get that understanding? What are some of the best ways that you can get that understanding?
1: Uh, well, again, I think it's a people game. Um, I, do think, I do think you need to you know, charge uh, the expertise, get to the expertise um, yeah. of whatever your product is. Um, in terms of getting your medium out, there's the, your message out, there are many different ways, whether you want to do it as an event-based, whether you want to do it as a national program, whether you want to do it as uh, a specific corridor um marketing program for example if you are looking to promote a new timetable um, you do it as a corridor promotion you go straight down the um, the corridor you know where the potential passengers are going to be as opposed to a broader um, you know a broader campaign or a broader um, program which might go
0: Mm. so just quickly before we we do um, wrap it up I'm I'm interested in your views about uh, managing up within organisations and probably managing up into the political realm. And as a communications person working in a government organisation, what is your best advice around managing ministerial offices? And how do you get the best outcomes working with ministerial offices, given that you know, they have, you know, particular interests and concerns and pressures and worries and other things. How how have you found the best way to work with ministerial officers over time has been in, in order to get that support you need for the communication program?
1: All right, look, I think there's a couple of things. One, I think it's very important to understand the way parliaments and ministers' offices and all officers work, um, and that includes The press gallery but uh, you need to understand the significant demands and pressures that are on uh, ministers officers and mps and their offices on the way through they they are the ones that deal with the public um, much more than we do Um, if there's an issue in an electorate um, the uh, the member of the public will come to the the mp about it Um, so that's that's very important Um, the other thing i think is incredibly important is to be honest Um, You need to be seen as an honest trader. Um, You know, you need to be seen as an honest trader. um, As impartial. As impartial um, to to gain the confidence of, you know, parochial political um, people. Mm. Um, Alongside that, I think in terms of working within Parliament, it's very important to make sure that if you've got a product, that product is um, accessed by all MPs. Um, for example, MPs' okay. briefings hosted by the Minister have always been something which has uh, either been, uh, if it's if it's a bit sensitive, resisted strongly by the, the office or, alternately, it's something that um, that the Ministers see as an opportunity to provide access to all MPs. Yeah, right. MPs look for stories as much as the media do. They want to have good news stories to go out to their electorate with. Um, so they are always looking for um, policy um policies, programs, funding programs which might be of interest to their electorate, to their voters, uh, specific voters. So they have a great interest in what goes on around Parliament beyond their own electorate. Yeah. So I think from the Minister's point of view, it's often a very good um, good thing to be able to present to um, the breadth of parliament through the
0: MPs, okay. not just a press conference, but an MPs briefing. Okay. There we go. All right, Alan Yates, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for coming into the studio to spend a bit of time with me today. And audience, lots of great advice there. And I think going back, this that notion of simplicity and clarity around your communication... And thinking more broadly, you know, I, I love Yates' advice there about getting up, getting out of your chair, go and speak to the people who understand the policy, the program, the regulation, and sit with them and try to help them and, and work with, you know, your own skill to, to to craft that story, to craft that narrative, which is going to be compelling for that audience. And indeed to seek their insights about what the audience may be looking for because they have spent so much time in developing that policy that program that regulation that they indeed have great insight that you can draw upon and their
1: networks they have networks we don't understand so we need to understand them to be able to communicate to them
0: yeah exactly okay so that's another great point as well so plenty of great value there from uh alan yates today so Yatesy, thanks very much thanks for coming in um i really enjoyed our conversation And uh, thanks. I really appreciate it. And I know the audience did as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for uh, joining me in transition. Uh, It's been a wonderful conversation today, and I look forward to joining you again next week at the same time. Bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more visit us at contentgroup.com.au.